live from Tel Aviv, two nice Jewish boys. On the morning of June 5th, 1967, exactly 50 years ago, with the Egyptian military amassed along the southern border, Israel launched one of its most decisive military strikes in history. Operation Moked, the preemptive airstrike that ushered in the Six-Day War, almost entirely wiped out the Egyptian Air Force. This was the first of six days of intense military action, domestic political strife, and international diplomacy, the conclusion of which left the world shocked. Michael Oren is best known today as a deputy minister in the prime minister's office, member of Knesset and the Kulanu party, and as the former Israeli ambassador to the United States. However, in a previous life, Oren taught history at the Hebrew University and Tel Aviv University and was a visiting professor at Harvard, Yale, and Georgetown. He is the author of several books, including one which is extremely relevant to our topic of discussion today, Six Days of War, June 1967 and the Making of the Modern Middle East. Deputy Minister Michael Oren joins us today for a special episode commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War. This podcast is made in cooperation with the Jewish Journal, www.jewishjournal.com. Also in cooperation with Secret Tel Aviv, Israel's largest online social network community in English. Just look for the group on Facebook or visit them at secrettelaviv.com. Subscribe to Two Nice Jewish Boys on iTunes. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate us. And of course, we want to hear your feedback. So let us know what you think in the comments or send us a message on Facebook. Hi, Michael. How are hey, you? Tan. Oh, shalom. Good to be Hello, with you guys. Shalom. Thank you. Thank shalom. you for joining us. Great. So, as we mentioned in the opening, the, the military action that kind of ushered in that opened the Six Day War was Operation Moked, Operation Focus. But if you, I mean, you have a whole section in the book dedicated to the context of the war and the, the prelude. Um, so if you had to put your finger on one thing that you would say is the turning point or, you know, the action that kind of led to the Six-Day War. Hmm. Um, it's a difficult question because there were, there were several, in fact. Um, but the major sort of dynamic that led to the war was the, the great upheaval within the Arab world. Uh, the Arab world was in the throes of an ideological struggle. Uh, today, it's between uh, secularism and uh, Islamic extremism. Uh, but back then, it was between conservatism and Arab nationalism, and extreme Arab nationalists. So you had the Arab nationalist bloc led by Egypt and its president, Gamal Abdel Nasser. In that bloc was also Syria, Iraq, uh, Algeria. Uh, and they were involved in, in they were intensely competitive with one another. Mm-hmm. And then the entire bloc was engaged in a struggle with the conservative Arab regimes, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Jordan. Mm-hmm. And this was not just a, a verbal struggle. Um, Gamal Abdel Nasser tried no less than 11 times to assassinate King Hussein of Jordan. Uh, at one point, King Hussein's prime minister was killed standing right next to him. So this, wow. was, this was serious business. There was only one thing that the Arabs agreed on, irrespective of whether they were nationalists or conservatives, uh, they agreed on their rejection of the state of Israel. They all, all hated us. They all hated us, and they, they still smarted uh, rather deeply from the defeat in 1948. It was only 19 years before. That maybe seemed like a, a long time to you young fellas, but not so long to me, and, uh, and the creation of the Palestinian refugee problem. Um, and it was also the way that an Arab leader whose legitimacy 
was being questioned, the way he can prove himself, to prove that he was a, a true, uh, bona fide, legitimate Arab leader was by striking out at Israel. So we all have heard of the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, but how many people remember that the PLO was created not by Palestinians, but created by Nasser in 1964 as a straw organization to prove how pro-Palestinian Nasser was. Mm -hmm. uh, other Palestinian organizations that were not part of the PLO, they were actually in competition with the PLO, was an organization called Al-Fatah under one uh, Yasser Arafat, which was supported by the Syrians. And both al-Fatah and PLO were carrying out terrorist organizations against Israel from the West Bank, uh -huh. which had been annexed by Jordan, so that when terrorists struck uh, in Israel, Israel struck back at the Jordanian army. So each country had this pet puppet of a Palestinian organization that uh, it used to its own interests, basically. But here it gets more complex. When Israel struck back, either at the Syrian army or at the Jordanian army, because of Palestinian terrorists then uh, the Syrians and the Jordanians would claim that Nasser wasn't doing enough to defend the Arab cause. Mm -hmm. And this put pressure on Nasser. So it created this sort of ineluctable and irreversible escalation. And that culminated in May of 1967 with Nasser's decision to expel uh, UN peacekeeping forces, the United mm -hmm. Nations Emergency Force from Sinai, as a way of proving that he was strong. He remilitarized the, the Sinai Peninsula. It had been demilitarized after the Suez Crisis of 1956. Um, he marched his army into the peninsula. And all of a sudden, the Arab world got frenzied uh, that Nasser was going to go to war against Israel. So Nasser saw that the Israelis weren't doing anything to stop him. Uh, the world wasn't doing anything to stop him. So Nasser upped the ante, and he closed the Straits of Tehran. Uh, mm -hmm. Today, nobody really knows what the Straits of Tehran are, <laughs> um, though they've recently been in the news again over questions of whether uh, Egypt could uh, lease them to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, um, they also built another set of of straits there in Egypt, or, or no? Um, I must say, oh, the, at the canal, they uh, built another canal, and they're doing all sorts of things They're doing a lot of the work area. there. That's fine yeah. by us, but I'm talking about this is back in 1967. If you close the Straits of Tehran, they are at the, the exit of the Red Sea, where the Red Sea empties into the, the Indian Ocean, and there's a straits there that are about a mile and a half wide. Mm -hmm. And if you blockade those straits, then ships traveling from Asia cannot get to Israel's port of Eilat. Right. Without going all the way around Africa. Yeah, you're really kidding. Yeah, all yeah. the way around Africa. No one was going to do that to bring yeah. us oil. Um so that was a blockade under international law is an act of war. So here you had the Egyptian army uh, kicking out uh, a UN peacekeeping force, um, redeploying along Israel's borders. You have a blockade uh, of our southern port of Eilat. And the Arab world um, believes that, that the liberation of Palestine is imminent. And all this was done, in a sense, because of the momentum, you say, that uh, Nasser felt behind him no particular... Uh, reason. No, I think Nasser himself was uh, feeling very beleaguered, um, both in the region and at home. Um, his own army was uh, was buckling under his rule. Um, the Egyptian economy wasn't succeeding. The Soviets were egging him on. It's interesting. There's an international dimension. Uh, during that same su the spring of 1967, the United States had begun its uh, large-scale bombing of North Vietnam. And... Uh, Soviet Union was allied with North Vietnam. It was very pressured. It wanted to sort of trigger a light, a sort of a small-scale crisis somewhere else in the world. So it kept on feeding uh, the Syrians and the Egyptians information that Israel was planning to attack and that the Israeli army uh, was amassing on Syria's border. 
Uh, Egyptian generals traveled to Israel's northern border, to the Syrian border, and so there was no Israeli buildup there. Uh, but the Soviets were interested in, in sort of keeping uh, the Middle East on, on at least a low boil and taking some of the pressure off of North Korea. So the number of factors came together uh, to create this war. Um, what's fascinating was that nobody anticipated it. Um, Israeli intelligence, you know, Israeli intelligence comes under a lot of criticism for its failure in the 1973 Yom Kippur War. But I'll tell you that the failure of 1967... Much more severe. Well, was no less glaring. Um, in April of 1967, the IDF intelligence predicted that war between Israel and the Arabs would not break out uh, any earlier than the summer of 1970. So they were off by three years. Well, Nasser was <laughs> reluctant, I mean, up until that point, right? Up until the breaking point, he didn't, because of what you said, the economic problems at home and the military and he knew that i mean this wasn't going to be a good situation as you describe in your book he didn't want to go to war so i mean how in the end did this i found no evidence to suggest that nasser wanted to go to war i found a lot of evidence to suggest that he did not want to go to war he yeah. kept some of his, his more um combative generals uh, under wraps including his chief of staff amr who did want to go to war and nasser thought that he would gain a political victory both mm -hmm. by evicting UNEF, by marching his army back into Sinai, closing the Straits of Tehran. It was a bloodless victory. So he believed and that Israel wouldn't react? He believed that Israel wouldn't react. But why? what happened? Why, why you, do you think that? What made uh, him think well, that? Well, because, listen, it, it, when he first evicted UNEF, nobody did anything. So you up the ante, and it's very, very, very sort of a classic sort of human behavior. It's not just Middle Eastern. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, try it with your parents sometime when you're a kid, you know. You, you wreck your room and nobody does anything, so then you wreck the living room and no one does anything, so you wreck the kitchen. And then they uh, take out your air force. And then, then all of a sudden you get punished, then you get grounded, yes. okay? But uh, you never know where the limits are. Right. And, um, and I, I, in this book, I tried very, very hard to put myself into Nasser's uh, sort of position and see the world through his eyes. How does and, one do that? And I think he was a, a rational actor. Well, how does one do it? In, in, methodologically, you go to Egypt and you sit in what archives are open. There aren't many archives. You talk to people who knew Nasser. Um, and remember, I'm writing this book quite a few years ago already. And, um, and there are people who knew Nasser I could talk to. And, um, and see, you know, I actually, in a strange way, had a, had a certain sympathy for Nasser. I, I had done my, also done my PhD thesis on Nasser in 1956 about the, about the Egyptian revolution mm -hmm. uh, from 1952 to 1956. speak Arabic, by the way? I knew Arab and Arabic sources. And, um, and I saw a man who actually, in, in many ways, certainly by Middle Eastern standards, was incorruptible, um, wanted the best for his people. Um, it wasn't, you know, he was a military dictator, but uh, by Middle Eastern standards, he wasn't a particularly cruel dictator. And um, and did give um, did give Egyptians not only Egyptians um, but Arabs generally a sense of pride. Uh, you may remember Fuad Ajmi. Fuad Ajmi was a great professor of, of Arab history and Islamic studies at Johns Hopkins. He, he's passed away, um, but he was a friend, and, and he would tell me he grew up in Lebanon, and he would tell me to to to, to the day that I spoke to him uh, that he could still not look at a picture of Gamal Abdel Nasser and not break out crying. It okay. was that kind of, that kind of emotive response mm -hmm. uh, that Nasser evinced from, from Arabs. Something that's very hard for us to, to understand. A difficult. Think. Maybe not it's, even looking at a picture of David Ben-Gurion would make you do that. Yeah. Um, remember the Arab world, it, it felt humiliated, it felt downtrodden, and here this man came along and gave them pride. And in his heyday, he was very handsome and dashing and, and, and eloquent.
But um, you're saying you got you tried to get into his head. So dude. if we're trying to get into his head, he's the head of this uh, country that uh, is on the bank. On it's going to starve, right? No food, and uh, they're involved in Yemen, and they are already in cranky relationship with uh, the United States. It's not very it's yes. edgy. Johnson actually cut off uh, food supplies. Yes. So yeah. how does that serve him then? To go to war at this point it, where it's, it there are already so many problems. But he didn't think he was going to war. He thinks he was creating a crisis, that he would win a bloodless victory. But what happened? The situation got out of control. Uh, the Syrians, who, remember, are formerly his, his rivals, um, suddenly rushed to Cairo to sign a mutual defense pact. Uh, if you go to war, we'll go to war. The Iraqis do the same. And then the most dramatic event of all is that Nasser's arch enemy, King Hussein of Jordan gets on an airplane, flies to Cairo, lands at the airport. Nasser meets them. Nasser says, you know, I could kill you now that you're here. But uh, Hussein says, don't kill me. I've come to put my army under Egyptian command. And in an extraordinary move, King Hussein places the Jordanian army under direct Egyptian command. Mm -hmm. Now, you understand from Israel's perspective, this is Israel snapshot, June 4th, 1967. This is Israel that is eight or nine miles wide at its narrowest. Uh, Jerusalem has a wall down the center of it from which Jordanian snipers shoot at Israeli civilians. Uh, Israelis cannot visit, their, Jews cannot visit our holiest sites in the, in, in the eastern part of the city. Terror, the terrorists infiltrate from all borders. Our borders. You have the Syrian army atop the Golan Heights, 10 meters from the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, shelling the kibbutzim and moshevim of the north. On um, a daily basis. Uh, pretty much. And um, Israel is completely, completely isolated internationally. This is very difficult for us to understand today. People who say that Israel is isolated today do not know of what they are speaking. Because not most people know, but we didn't have the backing of the United States. The United States was friendly, mm -hmm. but it wasn't an ally. It had Israel, the Israeli defense forces did not fire a single American bullet. Um, we had um, no relations to China. China was a hostile country. India was a hostile country. French was coming and going. No, no, the French went. Um, they went the by The French then, yeah. were our only allies, and the night before the war, they switched sides. Um, there was the Soviet bloc. And that was Russia plus 12 satellite nations. They all cut off relations with Israel. They backed our enemies. I and mean, Israel was utterly, utterly alone. So what did and we so have? We had, we had leftover we had, weapons? We had French weapons. Uh -huh. We had surplus weapons from World War II. Um, most of Israel's tank forces... And some were other World weapons. War II World War II tanks that had been upgraded, called Super Shermans, mm -hmm. or British Centurion tanks, or the French AMX tank, which is a very light tank. But the Jordanians, for example, uh, who had a close strategic relationship with the United States, had 100 M60 Patton tanks. Uh, those are the tanks that were used in Vietnam, and there was nothing in Israel's arsenal that could stop an M60 tank. It was that big. So you actually had American tanks fighting each other. During this war, well, you had you had on one hand new spanking new M60 yeah. patent tanks fighting old World War II yeah. um, resurfaced but Israeli tanks. There's something tanks. unnerving about that <laughs> that you have American tanks on both sides of the of the line shooting yeah. at each other. Well, today yeah. it's Israeli guns in Africa, yeah. so you know. No, no, but they had um, and our planes were French planes. Yeah, they were Mirage jets, not F-16s, yeah. not F-15s, not Skyhawks, not uh -huh. Phantoms. And, uh, you know, a hodge, if you look at pictures of the Israeli army back in 67, you're amazed at the hodgepodge 
of weaponry. Some people wearing British helmets. Some people wearing American helmets. Some people wearing Soviet helmets. Yeah, mm-hmm. a hodgepodge. Yeah, um, maybe yeah. a Zek Zek gun here and there still uh, <laughs> at the collection. They they had you know, old weaponry. I I've, I've spoken to people um, who fought in 1967 war who were issued you know World War II Czech bolt action rifles with nine bullets. Uh, so it, it, it yeah, was a very different, very different, a very different army back then. Yeah, and and so mm-hmm. what's happening before we dive into mm-hmm. the deep psychological aspects? What's happening in the war, more or less, is that at, at that point, uh, Nasser keeps uh, raising the pressure, mm-hmm. right? And also in Syria, they are preparing, and Israel is holding itself and holding itself. Eventually, uh, we break under the pressure and decide to do the preemptive strike, right? So wh- why does this happen? First of all, um, a man I didn't know about before I started my research, but who I learned about and came to love and admire was Levi Eshkol, the prime minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, not particularly charismatic man, not particularly articulate man. Mm-hmm. And um, and just it's safe to say that our generation knows nothing, nothing about, about him. him. And I listen, I knew nothing about him even my generation. Um, very bland. And yet it turns out that behind the scenes, not only was was he uh, famously witty. There's an entire book about uh, the wit of uh, Levi Eshkol, warm, intelligent, but above all strong. And um, when Arab armies are amassing on Israel's borders, and Israel's left entirely alone. Uh, Israel's generals come to Levi Eshkol and said, you have to strike preemptively right now. Every, not every day, but every hour that passes, our situation grows more perilous and weaker. And you uh, are endangering the future, not of the Jewish state, but of the Jewish people. This is what Arik Sharon, a, a general then on the major staff, on the, major, on the general staff told him. And, um, and Levi Eshkol stands up to it. Uh, Yitzhak Rabin, who was the chief of staff then, has a physical and nervous breakdown under this pressure, but not, not Eshkol, who was a much older man. And Eshkol said that Israel has to exhaust every possible diplomatic option before going to war. We have to prove to the world that we want peace. We have to prove above all to the United States that we want peace. And he waits. And he waits. And he waits. Um, Israelis of that generation refer to it as Tufatam Tana, the waiting yeah. period. Waiting to be annihilated, more or less. People, you know, <laughs> today, you know, Israeli mothers protest for peace. Back then, Israeli mothers were protesting in front of the prime minister's office for war because their husbands were called up, their sons, their brothers were called up. This was an agrarian society. There was no one to pick the vegetables, no one to pick the fruit. Um, the place was, in, in any case, Israel was close to bankruptcy back then. The, the economy was... Uh, People so dug they, shelters in their backyards preparing the Israeli for the gov- The Israeli government dug 10,000 graves in a Tel Aviv park. Really? In preparation. And they thought that it wasn't going to be enough, that it yes. would not hold all the dead. Now, why? Okay. Obviously, you know, Israel's surrounded by tank, but outnumbered, outgunned uh, on all flanks, uh, isolated in the world. But let's also remember who the Israelis of 1967 were. They were... Many Holocaust survivors. Many Holocaust survivors and refugees from Arab lands. Many of them remembered the War of Independence. Remember, only 19 years earlier... When the Egyptian army almost conquered Tel Aviv, when Jerusalem was under siege with 100,000 Israelis without food, without water, 1% of the population had been killed in that war, which is an, a, an insufferable percentage mm-hmm. for any nation. Imagine 100, 1% of America's population being killed in any war, God forbid. And it was a traumatized generation. And with Arab leaders openly say that this is a war of extinction. We're not out to defeat Israel. We're out to destroy Israel, to throw Israel into the sea. Israeli leaders are 
reflecting the the existential fears that uh, rifled Israeli society. But isn't that when the chief of staff should be the professional? He knows his army. He should have known the abilities of the army. How is it that he underestimates and has so many doubts about the army and doesn't realize his own might? Well, I think now you're getting into a, a psychological analysis of Yitzhak Rabin. From what I, I read in your book, I see quotes of him saying this and that and the way he acts and the nervous breakdown. That's, I, I deduce from that, but correct me if I'm wrong. No, he has, he has a nervous breakdown. He has people like Ben-Gurion coming to him and saying, it's all your fault. You got us into this mess. Up until that point, I mean, he was constantly pushing Levi Eshkol to, to act, right? Against Syria, against Jordan. The, the, the overriding fear of Israeli uh, policymakers, particularly in the defense department, in defense field, was that Israel would lose its deterrence power. Mm -hmm. And therefore, every act of aggression... Um, whether by Palestinian terrorists or by the Syrian army, uh, every act of aggression had to, um, had to elicit a response, an armed response. There was never a time when someone would shoot at us where we wouldn't shoot back and usually shoot back quite massively. And this contributed to the escalating tensions between us. A classic example, the Syrians decided uh, to divert the Jordan River before it crossed into Israel. That's ingenious. It's, it's, it's a crazy idea. Israel was, Levi Eshkol was a great farmer. He wanted to take water from the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan and move it down to the Negev, the national water carrier. Yes. The Syrians said, we're going to preempt this by diverting the Jordan River. Israel guns, Israeli guns, fired at the Syrian bulldozers. Syrian guns fired back. Israeli guns fired back at the Syrian guns. Syria sent up jets to shoot at our guns, and we ended up shooting down six Syrian MiG jets. This is in April 1967. And then our pilots, God bless them, took a victory lap, a loop over Damascus, which further humiliated the Syrians. What did the Syrians do? They blamed the Egyptians. Nasser's not doing enough to defend us. That puts more pressure on Nasser. You see how this works, this yeah, whole dynamic? Yeah, it's ridiculous mm -hmm. today. And, um, and it, it creates this really um, irreversible process that's going to lead to a war that nobody anticipates and nobody wants. So if he and, was so confident in those actions before leading up to the war, Rabin, then what, what, why, what made him so, you know, doubtful? If well, he it, it was people telling him that he had gotten Israel into this fix, that he had endangered the future of the Jewish state. Um, he, he did not bear up well under the pressure. Eshkol, by contrast, did. At no point did he falter. He got very sick at one point and gave a speech where he stammered and, and also sent the, the population was so, there was like a trigger, hair trigger, uh, panic here. So he yeah. gave, gave a speech on Israel Live radio. TV, you know? Oh, radio, yeah. And, and, he, and he stammered because there, there had been edits, last minute edits on the speech. He couldn't read the edits. Um, and people thought that, you know, here the man is not, is not, is not holding up. And they got panicked. It's probably the worst moment in Levi Eshkol's life was that speech. They remember it to this day, an Umamugam Gim, the, the, the stammered speech. Yeah. And uh, anybody of that generation remembers it and remembers it traumatically. And, uh, but that's how scared people were here. Now, keep in mind, when the war breaks out on, on June 5th, yes, it's true that Israel strikes um, the, Isra the Egyptian Air Force, and it strikes the first of three defensive lines that the uh, Egyptians had in Sinai. The, 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 the objectives of the war were very, very limited, very limited. The Jordanians strike Israel and the Syrians strike Israel. But when the Jordanians strike Israel, not only do they move troops toward West Jerusalem 
And those Israelis who remembered the siege of 1948 said, oh, they're going to do it again. And Jordanian guns began to shell West Jerusalem, and Jordanian long-range guns began to bombard the outskirts of Tel Aviv. Now, this we're sitting in the outskirts of Tel Aviv. You can't imagine Jordanian shells falling in this neighborhood. You can't imagine Gazan missiles. But, but yeah. that, you can't, but Jordanian <laughs> artillery shells. Now, yeah. again, you have to put yourself in the mindset of Israelis in 1967. Yeah. That's World War II they, all, all over again. No, it's, it, it, it's, it's 1948 all over again. Yeah. Now, Jordan, we've had peace now with Jordan since 1994. I later on worked for Yitzhak Rabin. I was present when he signed that peace treaty with, with King Hussein. It was one of the most um, inspiring days of my life, 1994. But in 1967, the generation of Israelis remembered the 48 War when the Israeli Defense Forces did not win a single battle, not one, against the Jordanian army. Because it was royal trained by, uh, by the British. British. By the British. And the British had been kicked out since then, but Israelis didn't. They were afraid of the Jordanian army. Yeah, it also is the most vulnerable border. The longest and the most vulnerable border, but yes. still the Jordanian army was a very Wait, in, formal army. And in fact, the Jordanian army fought very valiantly. Yeah. They weren't very well led, but they fought valiantly. So you're saying uh, in, the, in the independence war, the Israelis didn't defeat the Jordanians once? Not once. Oh, so they, they lost in Jerusalem. They lost in Latrun. Uh-huh. The Jordanian army, you know, uh, defeated the, the, the Etzion bloc. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, there, was a, there, was a, there was a Jordanian scar here. Uh-huh. The Egyptian army came within 25 miles of Tel Aviv. And then laid siege to Jerusalem. That's 48. In 1948. Yeah. So it wasn't as if, you know, the Egyptian army is very far away. No, the Egyptian army could be down the road from you. Uh-huh. Uh, if you lived in, in the southern part of Jerusalem in 1948, if you lived with us now, uh, Arnona, Talpiot, Ramat Rachel, you had the Egyptian army down the street from you. And uh, so that these were not, the notion of Egyptian tanks rumbling through the streets of Tel Aviv was not unthinkable in 1967. So at the end, we do go for a preemptive strike after yes. waiting and waiting and trying. Abba Evan goes uh, to the States and he tries and he does so many efforts um, to and, bring and, and a diplomatic... And Linda Johnson, much to his credit, that's another person I, I got to know fairly well that I didn't know. And remember, growing up in a certain generation in the United States, Linda Johnson was sort of the bad man of Vietnam. Um, here I saw a statesman who cared passionately about Israel, uh, could not help Israel militarily because of Vietnam, Again, Israel did not have a, a strategic alliance with the United States, a friendship, and came up with this brilliant idea. He came up with this idea that he called Operation Regatta. Uh, the 26 nations in the world, he would each contribute one ship to an international flotilla that would sail through the Straits of Tehran and break the Egyptian blockade. They would sail to a lot. And I was shocked as a researcher in the American archive to find lists of targets Egyptian targets that the United States military had already picked out to be bombed if the Egyptians opened fire on this flotilla. Mm-hmm. There's only one problem. No country wanted to contribute any ships. And even Congress objected to the idea. What are you, crazy? They said to the president, we're already in Vietnam. You want to open up another war for us? Mm-hmm. So Lyndon Johnson had to go back to the Israelis and say, you know, sorry, I can't help you. Um, when Abba Ibn was at the White House on the night of May 23rd, Johnson kept on saying to him, almost obsessively, over and over again, Israel will not be alone unless it decides to be alone. And nobody in Israel understood what he meant. It was too cryptic. Yeah. And that, that, sta- that saying, Israel will not be alone unless it decides to be alone, 
was subjected to, to Talmudic scrutiny here. What does he mean? Again, the scars. The big scar here was Suez 1956, when Israel joined with Britain and France, attacked Egypt, and reached the Suez Canal. And President Eisenhower threatened to sanction Israel and put tremendous pressure on Israel to withdraw. And the British so the, and the French abandoned Israel. Yeah, and, every, and so the, the, the great fear here was that Israel would go to war and find that the United States was once again against Israel. It was uncertain. Eshkol, the whole night between June 4th and June 5th, does not sleep a wink that night because of the fear of what the United States will and will not do. So you have all this fear. You have all these, um, you know, old weapons and no one, you know, this, this uh, solitude. We're all, we're isolated and we're outnumbered almost two to one. And yet somehow we emerge, you know, unexpectedly victorious. So how does that happen? I mean, what, what led to an Israeli victory? Um, several factors. Uh, one was our ability that we learned even in 1948 that Ben-Gurion pioneered that you don't attack all fronts simultaneously. You focus on one front, you break that one front. And once the one front is broken, then you move to other fronts. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is done again and again. The paratroopers who liberated the, the Western Wall moved right up to the Golan Heights. Those same paratroopers had been preparing to fight in Al-Arish. So they were moved from the Egyptian front to the Jordanian front, to the Syrian front within six days. Same paratroopers. Um, And we enjoyed a tremendous advantage with the collapse of the Egyptian military. Now, those of you who study military history will know that the most difficult thing you can do in war is not an offensive, but a retreat. And the Egyptians uh, could not retreat in any order. Um, It was a, uh, a, a helter skelter retreat in which much of the Egyptian army found itself on one road, and the Israeli military tanks and planes were simply able to stitch that road. And so the pictures that are left after the war, some of the iconic, horrible pictures, are just of rows and rows and rows of destroyed Egyptian vehicles. And much of the Egyptian military takes off its shoes and runs through the sand in an attempt to swim across the Suez Canal. Swim across. So there was no orderly retreat. The Egyptian army basically breaks on the second day. Mm-hmm. The uh, Jordanian army... Uh, held um, pretty strongly, uh, both in Jerusalem as well in the West Bank. Um, and, but eventually they break as well. And that leaves the, 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 the Syrians, the, the Golan Heights fighting doesn't start until the other two fronts are already concluded. Yeah. It's almost as if they were waiting. I mean, like, why? Um, because they weren't, again, I, in my research, I was able to, there are no open Arab, uh, Arab archives, you should know. But I was able to, by all sorts of interesting ways, purchase Arab archives. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I purchased the Syrian military archive. How? <laughs> I can't tell you. I'll tell you, but I purchased the Syrian military archive. It was extraordinary, because then you saw the war through Syrian eyes. It's a copy of the archive, I guess, right? It was a copy of the archives. Okay. But, but listen, this, 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 something very similar happened with the Syrians that happened with the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. They started shelling us. The minute that uh, they learned that Israel had gone to war against Egypt, the Syrians began a massive shelling of the north. I mean, tens of thousands of shells are fired at, at, at northern Galilee. And Israel responds with shell fire, some plane fire, not much. And the Syrians conclude that Israel has no, no intention of going to war against Syria. So they increase their shelling and increase it, increase it, increase it until finally you know, Israel, Israeli leaders conclude, and that's another story if you want to hear it, uh, that they're going to take care of Syria as well. 
So again, you know, sometimes in war, but not just in war, in international relations, the lack of a measured response of, of a, of a uh, I would say, a, a strong response can bring about just the opposite reaction what you want. It can actually bring about an escalation rather than a de-escalation. Yeah. I think we saw, we've seen it most recently in the civil war in Syria. Now, the failure of the United States uh, in 2013, 2014 to act— um, um, in in a decisive way in Syria, increased the bloodshed there didn't didn't didn't, didn't decrease it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- mm-hmm. what is then, in your opinion, what was the Arabs' biggest biggest mistake? Just even assuming that Israel would go to war, and they believed their own propaganda that Israel uh, was a weak country that was going to collapse. I mean, I I read extensively, you know, in the Arab press that this was a transient country. It was made of Jews. Jews are inferior. They can't fight. Um, and that uh, they... But, but didn't they remember the 56 war? No, you're assuming, How, it, you're assuming that no they, assume they had access to you know, public television. <laughs> to they the did internet. Not. <laughs> and the internet. They did not. No, you, you could even go to the Egyptian War Museum today in Cairo and see their exhibits on... on there's an exhibit on the 56 campaign which has an Egyptian ship... Um, uh, destroying the city of Haifa, which of course never happened. The Egyptian ship was actually taken captive. Or there's an exhibit on the 48 war, which just shows the Egyptian army taking Yad Mordechai, which they call by an Arab name. But um, uh, the kibbutz in the south, there's, there's no mention of these wars. And they didn't happen. And, um, you know, the, the, it's literally, you know, it's, it, Ben-Gurion used to say, history isn't written, it's made. So they do a lot of making of history. It's okay, it's their prerogative. But um, the people in the street, first of all, it was a very young Arab world. They made probably those people didn't even remember the 48 war in any real way, the 56 war. Um, and Nasser emerged from 56 as, as a hero. Mm-hmm. And as far as the Arab world was concerned, he was the victor in 1956, not the loser. Mm-hmm. So um, they were just building on a victory. They underestimated us severely. They did. They did indeed. What was but, our biggest mistake? And yet, and, oh, we made many mistakes. There were, there were numerous mistakes in war, as there are in any war. I mean, I could give you an example of the paratroopers uh, coming to Jerusalem without aerial maps, with, with the wrong weapons, um, g- taking wrong turns and going right in, marching right into uh, Jordanian ambushes. Ammunition Hill, probably the most famous battle of the 67 war, was a mistake because the paratroopers under Motagor did not believe that the Jordanian army was there. They thought the Jordanian army was dug in elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And they stumbled into it. Now, uh, uh, again and again, this happens with mistakes. Um, my book also deals with the Liberty Incident of June 8th, 1967, when Israeli planes and, and torpedo ships uh, attacked an American spy ship, the Liberty, and caused it extensive damage, both material and human. It remains, a, a, at times, an open wound. It, op- it reopens uh, with alarming frequency, and I have read every document pertaining to liberty, and I'll tell you that it was a tragic mistake in which, uh, as the case with many mistakes in war, had many, many authors, many parents to it, mistakes made by the Americans, mistakes made by the Israelis, but a mistake. And um, it happens in war. I have um, I've had the, how should I say, the misfortune of having fought in several wars. And, um, and I will tell you that uh, mistakes are quite often are, are more the norm rather than the exception in, in combat. Mm-hmm. And then you improvise. You know, they say <laughs> behind every, every, every medal of honor is a series of mistakes. Uh, and you look at Ammunition Hill, and people exhibited um, outstanding bravery there. Yeah. 
but it's a battle which, uh, had the Israeli army had better uh, intelligence, might not have happened at all. Right. Um, for example, oh, by the way, the captain of the Liberty also received the Medal of Honor. But nonetheless, we, I mean, we, you know, we came out with less than a thousand casualties. Which was a it lot was, for, a, for a country. A lot, 700 killed was a yeah. lot for a country of this size. Two and a half million yeah. Israelis. People don't Israelis. talk much here about the casualties of that war. It's amazing. And, uh, and they were very painful indeed. Um, but relative to the to the Arab side, I mean, it was relative to the Arab side. You know, if, you draw, if you draw any solace from that, that we killed more yeah. Arabs than they killed of us, well, I don't. But um, I don't draw solace. But what yeah. I'm wondering is, I mean, we it was this um, this decisive victory, clearly. Yeah. And I mean, what you mentioned, the lesson that you know we can take from it that we need more decisive action. But you know, it seems like today we we have these operations that don't seem to bring such decisive victories is there some war kind has of changed okay the nature of war has changed mm-hmm. how so i don't think you have many um the temple mountain is in our hands moments anymore i used to call them mount suribachi moments if that means anything to you that's when the marines raised the american flag right. on Hiroshima. yes well, there's a moment we actually raise a flag and say okay we won mm-hmm. um asymmetrical warfare doesn't lend itself to those photo op moments of victories um, and um, when you're dealing with, uh, you know, terrorist groups like Hamas who are dug in beneath hospitals and schools, it's an entire different situation. They don't wear uniforms. They don't have dog tags. Um, and it's a completely different military situation today um, than what we faced back in 67, where it was just the armies that were fighting, with the exception of Jerusalem, fighting for the most part away from urban centers. All right. That was the only urban warfare in 67 was in Jerusalem. Uh, today, it's all urban warfare. Everything's urban warfare. Hezbollah is deeply dug in under every southern Lebanese village. Mm-hmm. That, if, if we go to war against Hezbollah, that will be urban warfare, at its worst, by the way, mm-hmm. and dug it under civilians. Not the case. It was in many ways, and I say this guardedly, it was a sterile war. A sterile war. Tanks in the desert. Yeah. Doesn't, you know, for, if you're a military person, it doesn't get more clear cut than that. And you can maneuver a tank, a, a, a war of maneuvering, something you'd study in the military academy. Mm-hmm. You know, go study the Gaza, go, go study the Gaza campaigns in the military. Very difficult, um, different. You know, your generation is to fight in many ways much tougher. I, I trained to fight the Syrian army, uh, and I fought the Syrian army, but and it was uh, it was an army, guys with uniforms, mm-hmm. tanks. Um, very very different. I'm wondering what. If there are still mysteries from your research, from your the process of writing this book, that still baffle you, that some things still that um, are yet unveiled from the <laughs> Six-Day War campaign. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, you know, I did research in, in Moscow. Now, um, and I, I don't speak Russian. I had a, a Russian interpreter. And I was fortunate that this was just during the period where the, where the Soviet archives were being opened to researchers. I was one of the first people into the communist archives fascinating and i learned that the former head of the middle east kgb desk was still alive closer to not just still alive but he was also the head of the russian intelligence services okay (laughs) gentleman the name name of vadim kurpachenko major general and i told my uh nice russian jewish interpreter um that i wanted to interview uh, General Kurpachenko, and he said, you're crazy. You can't walk into the Russian intelligence service and interview somebody. 
And I said, no, I got to interview him. <laughs> he was scared to death. I left a message literally on his door, like a, like a little uh, yellow pasty, a sticky. And lo and behold, they call me. General Kripachenko wants to talk to you. And he, he, he hosts me at this magnificent, you know, uh, 17th century palace uh, with tea and coffee. And it was just, it was, it was wonderful. I spoke to him for two and a half hours on the record, recorded. And I had one question that I wanted to ask him that was just driving me crazy. Just like, apropos of your question. I said, Soviet leaders learned on June 5th that the Egyptian Air Force was destroyed. They learned on June 6th that the Egyptian army was in full retreat. Why then didn't the Soviets go immediately to the Security Council and demand a ceasefire? Why did they wait another five days? And General Kurpachenko laughed and laughed and laughed. And this is what he said to me. He recalled that the Soviet Union back then was, was ruled by a troika of Brezhnev, Kosygin, and Podgorny, three gentlemen. And he said they hated each other. And we couldn't get them into the same room for five days to agree on what the Soviet policy should be. So because of some internal argument... They could not get to the Security Council. Nobody in the Security Council asked for a ceasefire uh-huh. until the fifth day. Now, that, that shows you a little bit about, you know, how fickle history can be. It can hinge on the fact that three Soviet leaders don't like each other and can't get into the same room. Yeah. It, it is very humbling. The whole experience is of, of writing history and not just living history, whether as ambassador or now in the Israeli government, can be very humbling mm-hmm. because you realize that um, human agency is very limited at the end of the day. Much is left to chance. Much is left to chance. I, so, go ahead, please. Was there any chance? What was, what was the reason you came to this, to this war in particular? And, well, I was what, was, what was what we used to call in history, I was writing the 30-year rule. Mm-hmm. Now, most Western-style democracies, Israel, the United States, Great Britain, Canada, ha- observe what they call the 30-year rule. That means after 30 years, most classified diplomatic documents are declassified. And I started writing this book in 1998, 30 years after the Six-Day War. So I, in most cases, I was the first person to look at any of these, these documents. And it was also a time when m- many of the actors from the period were still alive. And I could interview. I, I conducted about 125 interviews. Uh, and I was able to travel to Arab countries. Uh, back then, I was an American citizen. I'm not anymore, so I traveled on an American passport and um, interviewed people I'd never thought I'd get to. Um, the, the Syrian ambassador to the UN, the Jordanian ambassador to the UN, uh, generals, Egyptian generals, Jordanian generals, uh, really fascinating. And, um, and to be the first one to look at these reports in the field. I had a eureka moment um, in one of the archives. I looked at this document and I literally got up in my chair and I did, I don't know, something like a war whoop. <laughs> In my hand was a letter sent from Prime Minister Levi Eskol to King Hussein of Jordan. Now, you know that Israel basically begged all the Arab leaders before the war not to go to war, particularly King Hussein. Mm -hmm. The letter to King Hussein from before the war said, you know, what's about to happen in the south is between us and Egypt and Nasser. You stay out of it, we'll stay out of it. But this letter was from June 7th, two days after the war began. What was happening on the morning of June 7th? 
Israeli paratroopers had surrounded the old city. Famous picture of Motagur and the paratroopers on the top of Mount of Olives about to go through the Lion's Gate. That picture was taken at 7 a.m. At that moment, Levi Eshkol wrote a letter to King Hussein saying, and said, my paratroopers have surrounded the old city. They're about to enter the old city. But if you meet three conditions, they won't enter. What were the conditions? Ceasefire. Two, expel the Egyptian commanders from Jordan. Three, enter into peace talks with us. So here you have the first leader of an independent Jewish nation in 2,000 years who was with, within several hundred yards of reaching the holiest site of Judaism, and he's willing to forfeit that historic right for the possibility of peace with one Arab nation. When he had two other fronts open. Uh, front go, and, and, and this letter was a no, unknown? Unknown. And um, Hussein doesn't answer. And <laughs> at 11 o'clock, you know, the paratroopers go through the, through, the, through the Lion's Gate. 11 o'clock, you know, the message comes back, the Temple Mount is in our hands. Right. That was four hours later. And all this is happening very fast. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you read, you, get, you, get, you read a letter like that. And you realize you're holding history in your hands. Yes. And, um, and Eshkol goes on. You know, the, the people forget that in the summer of 1967, the Israeli government voted to return almost all the land conquered from Egypt and Syria in return for peace treaties. Uh, the answer was the three no's of Khartoum. No peace, no negotiations, no recognition. Um, um, experts were sent out to interview Palestinians in the West Bank about whether they would agree to establish an autonomous Palestinian entity in the West Bank. They all said they'd love to, but they can't. They're all afraid of the radicals, particularly Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat would kill them. That's, yeah. It's ironic. But- and in the year 2000, when, when, when Arafat was offered a state by Bill Clinton and Ehud Barak, he said, if I sign this agreement, the radicals will kill me. Uh, some things don't change. They forget but, that Israel made serious efforts for peace even in that summer. But you know, uh, Michael, uh, the Six-Day War is celebrated here as a great victory, but apropos the things you just mentioned, when you look at the results of the war, apart from the victory and the land and uh, the dignity that was restored to us, you see less than two years after, huge ro- war with Egypt once again broke the um, war, of attrition. war of attrition, and not um, uh, long after the Yom Kippur War. So I figured, I don't know, uh, if it were indeed such a great victory, how is it that so um, so quickly we found ourselves again in battle with these guys? I mean, maybe it wasn't such a decisive and big blow victory. So let's look at what were the what were the gains. What did Israel gain from this war? Um, one obviously was Israel didn't lose the war. It had to lose the had lost the war. The the results could have been much different. Um, young American Jews of my generation remember a book called if, "If Israel Lost the War," and in that book you see Egyptian tanks, you know, rumbling through the ruins of Tel Aviv. At the end of the book, Moshe Dan is taken out and shot in front of a firing squad. I mean, it, it was it was it, it spooked an entire generation of American Jews. Um, if Israel lost the war. It's a, it's a collector's item today. Okay. And I, I strongly recommend it. Uh, so let's start with that. Uh, but let's add, then Israel didn't have defensive borders. It was eight miles or nine miles wide. Uh, Israel had defensive borders. Um, the territories that Israel captured from Egypt enabled us to trade territory for peace. 
Resolution 242, which established that principle of territory for peace, was passed in November 1967 because of the Six-Day War. And that has remained the cornerstone for peacemaking ever since. That in itself was a huge achievement, a huge achievement. And the, the peace with Egypt enabled us to make peace with Jordan. Um, but that's the, long after. But still. Yes, but what, in the what, short what, term. What would we have to trade in the, in the short term? In the short term, we didn't scare them enough if we speak street language. We didn't scare them language. enough, but we scared them enough in 1973. It's interesting. I, I want to go back to the gains, okay? But I'll answer your, your question specifically. It's interesting because, you know, as an ambassador, I spent a lot of time in American military academies. Yes. And you'd be surprised to learn that the, the Israeli battles they, 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 they study at West Point are not those of 1967, but of 1973. They re, they review they consider 1973 a much greater military success. Mm -hmm. Why? Because Israel had every disadvantage, both numerically, and had lost the element of surprise, as the United States has repeatedly in the past: Pearl Harbor, Fort Sumter. Mm -hmm. They were surprised themselves. They the were Israelis. the Israelis oh, terribly surprised, and we suffered terribly. But the fact is, we completely reversed the course of the war, and by yeah. the end of the war, both Cairo and Damascus were, were within, within, within 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 artillery range. Mm -hmm. Now that by military, purely military terms, that's even a bigger military victory than '67, and the '73 war combined with the '67 war convinced Arab countries that there was no conventional way of destroying the state of Israel. Yeah, and that is why the Arab world, such as it was, went on to the next stage, which was terror. Terror begins in the early '70s, and that stage ends in 2005 with the defeat of the Second Intifada. And now we're into the third stage, which is the stage of lawfare and, de and delegitimization. Right. It's, it's less military so, now. So, I mean, that, that is kind of a optimistic, uh, promising trend. Yeah, sure it is. So you see this conflict ending sometime? I don't know if I see a conflict ending, but I see um, we ha every once in a while have to um, convince our adversaries that they can't defeat us. And we will force them to take on, you know, say, new ask, new tactics to try to defeat us, and we'll we'll develop means to stop it. Iron Dome, as ambassador, yeah. I had the honor of bringing American American aid for Iron Dome. Where would we be without Iron Dome mm -hmm. uh, today? And you know, they they thought they had us with those missiles, but guess what? They don't. And now we have another one called David Sling, which can take out intermediate ranges, Arab two, Arrow three rockets. Uh, we have an, we have a multi-tiered multi-tiered umbrella. Of missile defenses. And which, president in world history. Of, well, unprecedented in world history is the first anti-ballistic systems to prove effective in combat. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it, these, are, these are extraordinary achievements. Uh, we haven't been able to achieve peace. Yeah. But I want to go back and, and talk about that. Talk about the, the, the successes of 67. What did we gain? Well, if you had grown up in America at that time as an American Jew, you would have been infused with pride about Israel and with Jewish identity. Uh, Jewish organizations that hadn't been particularly pro-Israel all of a sudden became very pro-Israel. Um, ironically, the Six-Day War gave American Jewry the courage to begin introspecting and retrospecting about the Holocaust. How so? When I was a kid, we didn't talk about the Holocaust. We whispered about the Holocaust. And it was only two years after 67 that I went to my JCC and I heard uh, a thin man on a stage named Ellie Wiesel talk about the Holocaust. And I couldn't believe it. Someone was actually on a stage talking about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And that sound, that's when Holocaust studies begin. All begins in the period after 67. In the States. In Israel, it was after the Eichmann trial. A little Eichmann, bit before. Yeah, but it took something. Yes. Right, it took something. You didn't, you didn't confront the Holocaust, as well, they the say process. in Hebrew, Stam. It took a lot. Yeah. Perhaps the greatest impact of the 67 war was on Soviet Jewry. 
Here you had three million Jews languishing behind the Iron Curtain. They could scarcely practice their religion. They couldn't study Hebrew. They certainly couldn't be Zionist. They consent to a labor camp for studying Zionists, for studying, for studying Hebrew, being a Zionist. Um, shortly after I got out of the Israeli army, I was sent to work underground in the Soviet Union, and it was brutal. It was brutal mm-hmm. what they went through. But it was the Six-Day War that gave them the courage to begin to stand up. Ask Natan Sharansky, who lived through this period, what the Six-Day War meant to him. And how uh, when Golda Meir came to Moscow, it was such a source of inspiration and strength for Soviet Jewry. And Soviet Jewry eventually plays an important role in taking down the Soviet Union, and when nearly a million Soviet Jews come to this country, it transforms this country in so many ways. I mean, the 67 war has these reverberations that, that, that spread across the decades that we don't necessarily think about. Yeah. Um, the U.S.-Israel Strategic Alliance, um, it's on the seventh day that uh, American policymakers wake up and say, whoa, there's this military powerhouse in the Middle East. It's pro-American, it's democratic, and it just defeated several Soviet-backed armies. <coughs> Excuse me, maybe we should be allied with that country. And that begins what will become the most multifaceted, deepest military strategic alliance which the United States has had with any foreign nation in its post-World War II period. All because of six days in June 1967. And you think about these things. But now I'm going to shock you. You ready? Yeah. All right. Sit down, okay. sit down your chair. Okay. Among the biggest winners of the Six-Day War were the Palestinians. Really? Okay. Why? Boom. Boom. Why? <coughs> Which Wait. Palestinians? Everywhere or those in the West Bank and Gaza? Beginning with the West Bank and Gaza, but ultimately anywhere. Well, uh, the West Bank, I, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but they were now no longer under uh, the dictatorship of um, King Hussein. True? Right, let's go back to 67. All right. Let's not view the, the, the past through the, pres- through the prism of the present. Okay. 1967, no one's talking about the Palestinians. Right. Even, you know, if you read the Western press... The, what we call the Palestinian terrorists of the PLO and al-Fatah weren't called Palestinian terrorists. They are called Arab terrorists. The Partition Resolution of 1947 divides Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state, not a Palestinian state. And usually before 67, if you're referring to a Palestinian, you're referring to a Palestinian Jew before 1948. Like Goldo used to say. Well, I'm she, a Palestinian. She was, but so were, you know... Many people here, but don't yes. you have? Don't you quote yeah. the Arab leaders leading up to the war talking about you know not abandoning the Palestinian cause? No, they don't. Re- the... don't yeah, not abandoning the, the cause of Palestine. Uh huh. But no one was talking about creating a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza. Yeah. I see. So they weren't talking so, to them about about them as a people. So what happens in the aftermath of '67? First of all, the Palestinians themselves despair mm-hmm. that Nasser is ever going to bring about their redemption. Because before that, they were all dependent. Every Palestinian organization was dependent on some, some Arab state. And the PLO becomes a real organization. And al-Fatah joins with the PLO in 1968. By 1969, Yasser Arafat is the head of the PLO. By 1974, he's getting a standing ovation in front of the General Assembly of the United Nations. This is all very fast. All very fast. Yeah. So if you look at today where people talk about 
peace negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians, and I've been part of those negotiations, and I hope to be part of those negotiations again, where you have a Palestinian authority not far from here in Ramallah, when you have the President of the United States coming shortly, I don't know when this is going to be broadcast, to talk about peace between uh, Israelis and Palestinians. In a not-so-deterministic way, all of that is the product of the Six-Day War. Because people forget that the Palestinians in uh, the territories, they were Jordanians. They were under... under the Jordanians Jordan didn't consider them Jordanians, but they were under Jordanian rule. They, they even had the citizenship, I think. They could take out citizenship. And the Gazans were under Egyptian Egyptian rule. military occupation. Right. So before they were liberated, or yeah. I don't know how you would refer to that, from that uh, dictatorship, those dictatorships, their chances of ever having a state would have been slim. I don't see... Uh, no one was even talking about it. Yeah. The, so, no one was even talking. It was the furthest thing from anybody's mind. Right. I didn't find any reference in four years of research and hundreds of thousands of documents to the possibility of creating a Palestinian state, not to the summer of 67 when Israeli leaders began to talk about creating a Palestinian autonomous entity. Yeah. But um, here's another point, just to sort of make it a finer point. It is the first time, 67 is the first time since the British mandate with the three major centers of Palestinian population, which are Gaza, the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, and Israel, those three centers of population are reunited under a single governance, Israel. And so the Six-Day War, I talked about it being an infusion of Jewish identity. It was also a tremendous infusion of Palestinian identity. And I see it in Knesset today with the United Arab List, where... It's not Arab lists are Israeli Arabs who are speaking for Arabs in Gaza, speaking for Arabs in the West Bank. The United Arab List, in not such a reductionist way, is a product of the Six-Day War. Okay. Got you thinking. Yes, <laughs> most definitely. Um, Deputy Minister Oren, thank, thank you so you. much uh, you. for coming. Before we go, I would like, please, to tell you that we are cooperating with two very cool... Um, organizations. One is the Jewish Journal of Greater Los Angeles, which is... Uh, which I adore. Uh, which, uh, yeah. yeah uh, also we. And then Secret Tel Aviv, which is a Facebook group of 150,000 um, people here in Israel. Olim mainly, who um, get updates about uh, life here in Israel and in Tel Aviv. And it's a really cool Facebook group uh, for everyone to enjoy. And you're all invited. Um, and your books are on Amazon. Right, on Kindle, you yeah, can I get ca them. I can't advance them anymore as a member of the government. Well, I can. But, but, but they're available at famously reduced <laughs> prices. I we can, can advance them, yeah. They're, they're really good, <laughs> and you can, yeah, you can get them. And um, Your latest book is Ally, uh, which is about, uh, amongst other things, your time as an ambassador in the United States. But it also talks about moving to Israel, you know, yeah. why I moved to Israel, how yeah. I came here as a you know, kid on kibbutz. Uh, Oh boy, many years ago, being a, a lone soldier, Chayel Boded and the mm -hmm. paratroopers, um, talks about being in Soviet Union, working underground. So check it out, and hopefully if you agree, we would love to do another episode and talk about that book. Always. Um, thank you so much, Deputy Minister. Thank and you. Good luck with everything. Bye. Bye. Bye.